It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet. Who out there will argue uh, that the African people taken from Africa, placed in chains, in the holds of mainly British ships, and sailed to America as slaves, as beasts of burden, owned by other human beings, literally owned by other human beings for whom they toiled uh, for no wages. They could not leave. Uh, they were literally chained to their place as the property, just like the cattle of the white slave owners in the United States. Who will argue that those people and their descendants have been embraced by the village? Who therefore will argue uh, that having not been embraced by the village, despite hundreds of years elapsing, despite even a black president in the White House, despite all of the so-called civil rights legislation, uh, that the children, the heirs of those brought to America as slaves have not been embraced by the village, who will be surprised, therefore, that some of them, with a little bit of assistance uh, from agent provocateur, are burning the village down just to feel the warmth. The United States, which has grown used to dispatching expeditionary forces all over the world to invade and occupy other people's countries, is now occupying its own country. The US military is being mobilized throughout the United States from sea to shining sea, from burning city to burning city. And its president is increasingly shrieking like an unhinged maniac, threatening people with fierce dogs, threatening them with condign punishment for rising up against what was seen in the case of George Floyd, a case of cold-blooded murder carried out by police officers in Minneapolis. I say officers uh, because although the fatal knee uh, belonged to former officer Chauvin, how appropriately named he is, uh, the other three officers in the squad uh, were jointly and severally responsible. First of all, because from another angle, uh, you can see that all four of them uh, were sitting upon the officer. And in new footage, you can see that all four of the officers were ruthlessly beating George Floyd inside the police cruiser. Now, George Floyd, now famously, 
said that he could not breathe. This was literally true, uh, but it's also metaphorically true uh, for the vast majority of black people in America. It is literally true uh, that the officer cared not uh, that George Floyd could not breathe and was ready to squeeze the life out of him all over an alleged, alleged passing of a counterfeit $20 bill. George Floyd died suspected of passing a $20 counterfeit bill. Uh, but it's metaphorically true, and that is even more important all across the United States. And that's why people are rising up uh, from Florida to Los Angeles, uh, to Chicago, to New York City, across the Midwest, they're rising up against the systemic injustice being practiced not by Donald Trump. Some idiots seem to imagine that this all began under Donald Trump. In fact, this has been a systematic reality uh, throughout the entire history of the United States of America. And the aforementioned Democratic President Barack Obama didn't only not address it, he made it far, far worse, along with his vice president, of course, uh, the dummy, uh, the struck dummy, Joe Biden, whose cowardice in this current conflagration will surely damn him in the eyes of anyone with a political brain on their shoulders. Joe Biden and Barack Obama well, the reason why Black Lives Matter had to be formed under Joe Biden and Barack Obama, the lives of black people in America got measurably worse, not better. And so Donald Trump, who now protests that he, he loves the African Americans as if they were animals in a zoo requiring his approbation, his petting, is only the man who inherited three years ago and a bit systematic racism, disadvantage, inequality and injustice in their country. Now, I've said before, what happens inside the United States is a matter for the people of the United States. And I don't resile uh, from that view. Of course, I have my side in the fight. Uh, but this is the same United States that has sent its soldiers, its Air Force, its Navy, all over the world, not just throughout 97% of its history as a state. Get your head around that one. 97% of the entire history of the United States of America has been spent at war somewhere or another. And the sending of armed force, lethal force, far greater than any force being unleashed on the streets of Los Angeles this evening is still going on. Lethal force, either by proxy or directly, is being visited by the United States from Iran to Venezuela, 
in the waters of the South China Sea. In fact, in one of the greatest ironies in all history, as America was burning, literally, as America was burning, and cops were killing people on the streets of America, Donald Trump appeared in the Rose Garden to launch yet another series of punitive sanctions and other measures against China, the proximate cause of which was China's treatment of protesters in Hong Kong. You really couldn't make this situation up. And yet this country, this great giant, otherwise warm-hearted country of people of great achievement and phenomenal ability and can-do spirit, the people with whom we allied and fought some of the Second World War, this country is being offered in November a choice between someone who's demonstrably barking mad and someone who is demonstrably in such cognitive decline that he can barely say his name, can't be allowed out for fear that he will forget who he is, what he's running for, or where he's currently standing. And that sums up the dilemma for the people of the United States. A choice between Joe Biden and Donald J. Trump. Unenviable, indeed. Of course, in politics, you can be riding high one minute, and the next minute, you can be on the floor. There are decades uh, when nothing happens, and there are weeks uh, when decades happen. And in the last couple of weeks, decades appear to be happening on the British political front line. Only two weeks ago, Boris Johnson was riding over 50% support in the opinion polls, and Labour was 20 points behind. Labour elected a man so wooden, the birds are trying to nest in him, who has said nothing, at least not until five days after events, on any of the great issues at home and abroad. And when he does, entirely misses the point, deliberately excludes the point, and yet that block of wood is now just five points, four points in some of the polls are behind Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has thrown it all away, and it isn't over yet. It's true that the government has four and a half years of an 80-seat majority still to run. That's true, uh, but that doesn't mean Boris Johnson has four and a half years. The men in grey suits in the Conservative Party have not missed uh, this cataclysmic collapse in Boris Johnson's authority and seeming ability uh, to manage the deep crisis in which Britain now finds itself. A crisis of the coronavirus, yes, uh, but also a crisis of the economy, a crisis of the legitimacy of the governing elite itself. 
we'll be talking to Professor Sir John Curtis, the king of all sophologists from Strathclyde University, about how this happened, how terminal it might be. Can Boris Johnson recover? Is Sir Keir Starmer sleepwalking into Downing Street? And if he is, what difference would it make? Uh, we'll be talking, of course, uh, to the respected governor of Minnesota, Governor Jesse Ventura, who many of us hoped, still hope, pray even, will run himself as a third party candidate against Trump and Biden at the presidential election in November. But whether or not he does, he's in a peerless, unique a position to describe the situation in Minnesota, having been its honorable and respected governor, and now viewing it from outside. We'll be talking to Governor Ventura in the first hour of the show, right after Professor Sir John Curtis. Not many television programs today had two guests of that caliber. We'll also be talking about Julian Assange, the latest stage of whose Calvary, whose crucifixion is taking place in London. As yet another legal attempt is made to take him out of the coronavirus hellhole, otherwise known as Belmarsh Prison. A gulag, if anyone ever saw one on British territory, unlike the Guantanamo Bay, which the United States illegally maintains in somebody else's country, mainly described as Cuba. And we'll be talking at uh, the third hour uh, with the respected vascular surgeon and doctor, Ranjit Brar, who since the beginning of this coronavirus crisis has talked us through the medical and medico-political and financial aspects of this story. And we're going to stick with our Moats Medic right to the end of this crisis. And I know that so many of you are interested always in what Dr. Ranjit has to say. And I'll be asking him, because I speak as someone whose children will not be returning to school tomorrow. My children will not be returning to school until Jacob Rees-Mogg's children return to school. Eton is not scheduled to open until September, which tells me something. Call me simple, lad. I know I'm not educated, but I figure if it's not safe for the children of our rulers, then it ain't safe for my children either. And I'll be asking Dr. Ranjit, what could be coming down the pipe for us? As hundreds of thousands of our people mass on beaches, not two feet, never mind two meters from each other. Some of them jumping off cliffs and having to be helicoptered off the beaches by the hard-pressed ambulance service. Parks, parks in poor areas of South London, parks like Primrose Hill in the richest areas in London are en masse with no social distance, partying like it's 1999. Are we headed 
for a second wave. Seems that way to me. So stick with us. This is going to be, I promise you, the mother of all talk shows. The first poll is already up and running. Were the riots in the United States inevitable? A, yes, B, no. You can vote now on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. I'll be right back. One Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Minute. It must have been a Merry Christmas for Boris Johnson and his Merry Men. Uh, they were ensconced for five years with an 80-seat majority in Parliament. Their Brexit strategy endorsed by the country in a general election. Unassailable, uh, somebody once said, of somebody else. And yet, and yet, uh, within the last couple of weeks, uh, that prospect has suddenly began to unravel. Who better uh, to put the pieces together for us than the king of all sophologists and political scientists in Britain, Professor Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. Uh, Professor, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Just give us the raw picture, first of all, if you would. Uh, wh- wh- why and how did it come to this in the opinion polls this weekend? Um, well, they were, of course, starting, what, little more than four weeks ago from a very high baseline. At that stage, we had opinion polls that, roughly speaking, were saying conservative around 50%. Labour Party just above 30%. If you take the average of the four or five polls that have been conducted since, the story about Dominic Cummings broke, what now, just over a week ago, that lead is now down to about five points. So essentially there's been roughly a seven-point swing against the Conservatives to Labour's advantage over the course of the whole of May, most of which, though not all of it, Um, has occurred in the course of the last week or so. So there is no doubt that so far as the Conservatives' popularity amongst the public in general is concerned, as measured by voting intentions, though of course we're not due to have another election for four and a half years, the government has taken a very substantial hit. Um, A swing of 4%, which is roughly what it's been in the last week, I mean, that actually is bigger than the short-term impact, at least, of Black Wednesday in September 1992, which is perhaps the last time 
when a government early on in its tenure uh, suffered a dramatic reversal of fortune. Um, of course, there's no guarantee that will continue itself. And in that instance, the government was not starting from such a high baseline as now. But I mean, however you look at it, the Conservatives have taken a very substantial hit, as indeed has the Prime Minister. Now, again, originally very, very high levels of satisfaction, not least when he was in hospital with coronavirus. But actually, ironically, since Boris Johnson has been back on the job, so his ratings have fallen. His ratings took quite a substantial tumble in the television broadcast that he gave, what, three weeks ago now on a Sunday evening, in which he announced the first easing of the lockdown. Um, and it's taken a further tumble um, in the course of the last week or so. Such that some opinion polls now suggest that maybe uh, the more people are unhappy, is are happy with how he's acting as prime minister. And certainly, um, they're not, even if those polls that still show more people that are satisfied or dissatisfied, the majority is not that great. And intriguingly, that majority is not as great as you now get, is if you ask how well you think Keir Starmer is doing his job, i.e. the new uh, Labour opposition leader. So however you look at it, uh, Cummingsgate has caused, certainly in the short run, the government a substantial electoral loss. It is that it's, we do not usually get movements of this scale. Um, and Boris Johnson has certainly paid a substantial short-term price for deciding to hang on to his advisor. And the crucial question is whether or not it actually becomes part of a broader narrative um, about this government, which uh, remains in the public memory for quite some considerable time. And yet Labour haven't had to do anything, which is just no. as well, because they haven't done anything. Uh, no. Keir, mean, Keir Starmer uh, is uh, the, the most, uh, how shall I put it, unenergetic leader of the opposition. Is he following uh, Bonaparte's advice uh, of never interrupting your enemy when he's making a mistake? That's certainly true in the last 10 days. I mean, essentially, um, the, the moment that we knew that the Conservatives were potentially in trouble on this issue was, and the opinion polling was showing, it wasn't just Labour voters who felt that Donald Cummings should resign. It wasn't just those who voted Remain who thought that Donald Cummings should resign, albeit both those groups very strongly felt he should. But as it were, you can say that's the case. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? The crucial point was that even in the early polling, around a half of those who voted Conservative in 2019 were saying Dominic Cummings should go. And certainly a majority of them saying they thought he'd broken the rules. Um, and equally, you know, leave voters, um, again, widely disbelieving uh, Dominic Cummings. So the point was, therefore, this was something that was disturbing and upsetting that electoral coalition that brought Boris Johnson his majority of 80 back in December of last year. And what was also true, of course, is it began very quickly to cause uh, dis public dissent and quite a lot of um, uh, uh, unhappiness inside the Conservative Parliamentary Party. So the point was, yeah, sure, for so long as Conservative MPs, including those on the Leave side of the argument, were expressing discontent, were saying that perhaps Dominic Cummings should resign, there was no reason for Keir Starmer to intervene. Because the crucial thing, of course, about that is if the Labour opposition had intervened at that point, then the pressure on Labour MPs not to express their unhappiness would have been much greater. Now, I think 
Now that the government has decided to hang on to Dominic Cummings, and now, as it were, there really isn't much further for Conservative MPs to go, although some of them are still expressing their discontent, I think we can anticipate what the opposition will now try to do is to say, well, actually, this is an indication of how badly Boris Johnson is doing handling COVID and handling uh, the country's affairs and try to make sure that it isn't just a question about about Dominic Cummings, but it's a question about, about Boris Johnson. So that's, that's part. I think the other thing I would say to you, George, in Keir Starmer's defence, I mean, look, the honest truth is Keir Starmer is a clever lawyer. So like a clever lawyer, he's good at posing questions. And you saw that in the two rounds of Prime Minister's questions we've had, which, because the House of Commons is not full like it usually is, has played to Keir Starmer's strength. He's been able, forensically, to ask Boris Johnson questions. He's forced him on the defensive, and he's forced the Prime Minister into making commitments that he probably didn't wish uh, to make. You're sure what he isn't very good at is exciting people, laying out a clear vision, um, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is certainly still lacking. And I think probably most people would say on that criteria, he's not as good as his predecessor, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. But I think, you know, crucial thing that Keir Starmer has achieved, unlike Jeremy Corbyn, is at least amongst those who express a view about him. And it has to be said, there are still plenty of people who have yet to make up their mind about him. But amongst those who, have, who are willing to express a view, they are more inclined to say, yeah, I kind of, kind of can imagine this guy being prime minister. Whereas one of Jeremy Corbyn's problems is that he never really convinced the public that actually he was appropriate for that particular job. It's particularly surprising in that there are no real substantive differences between Keir Starmer's approach to the coronavirus crisis and the government's. Well, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's entirely uh, correct, George. No, I mean, what is certainly true, the, the, the Labour Party has not been attacking the government ferociously. It's not been go, going too much over old ground about, you know, why were so many people let into care homes, et cetera, et cetera. There's a good reason for that, because the truth is, at the end of the day, I think there's one thing that everybody is agreed on, whether you're on the far left or on the far right, whether you're an ardent remainder or an ardent lever. You would, you do hope that the number of people who die and who suffer serious morbidity from this virus is kept as low as possible. And we all have our fingers crossed that the scientists will either find uh, some drug regimes that improve the uh, prognosis for people and maybe discover a vaccine sooner than one later. That, that's something we, we all want. And to that extent, at least, because the government is fighting something or is trying to deal with something, Though we all hope that the measures will succeed, there is a limit on where the opposition can go. What Labour Party has done, however, is it's been fairly persistently coming from a position of saying, you know what, I think, Prime Minister, maybe you are trying, you're not being tough enough. That actually, uh, you know, they were, they were, the, the, the public consensus certainly broke down Again, going back to Boris Johnson's televised speech of three weeks ago, that was the moment at which Keir Starmer kicked in and said, look, you know what, this isn't right. And Nicola Sturgeon said this was right. That was the moment when the, the temporary political truce broke down. And the Labour Party has been pretty, pretty persistent since saying we think you're going too far. And of course, 
um, you know, that seems to be the mood of the public. The public have been tending to say, I'm not quite sure we want to go back to work. We're not quite sure whether you want to turn to school, though what the public certainly do want to do, and the government is finally tumbled to, they do want to be able to meet each other, even if socially distanced. But the, the government certainly has been emphasizing the economy, um, uh, uh, education, etc. And, you know, we are now seeing the also another the consensus between the government and, and public health scientists break down. And I think we can probably anticipate the Labour Party will continue to query and question whether or not the government has been taking a risk in further easing the lockdown measures in England uh, as from tomorrow in a way that is not happening in the rest of the United Kingdom. So, yeah, but I think you know, you're right. Labour Party has been constrained, but I think one can understand the constraint. But I think given Labour Party is basically being going, you know, actually maybe you should be doing more on lockdown and now saying maybe you're easing the lockdown too far. Labour Party is certainly positioning itself in the right place if indeed, and this is not something any of us wants, the government's measures continue Continue to fail, they are yeah. not proving to be effective, and the government apparently taking the wrong decisions. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier, as did I in my introduction, uh, that there's no election for four and a half years. Uh, but that doesn't mean there won't be an upheaval inside the governing party. Uh, Correct. Uh, the, the men in grey suits are never far away, and nothing concentrates the mind of a member of parliament uh, more than the fact that they have to face an electorate uh, at some stage. Uh, do, you, do you see any straws in the wind? You see, I was surprised, given that uh, Cummings and uh, Johnson are a political item. Uh, they are, uh, they are uh, absolutely inseparable. And clearly the Prime Minister depends a lot uh, on uh, Dominic Cummings, that so many Conservative MPs were ready to publicly associate yeah. with a demand which could only have the effect of humiliating uh, the Prime Minister. Yeah, absolutely. The, the one thing that we know about Prime Ministers is that their authority rests on their, on their perceived ability to maintain the careers of their parliamentary colleagues. And until, um, what, a fortnight ago, by that criterion, Boris Johnson was in a very strong position because he had managed back in December in a way that perhaps many people thought was going to be very difficult to achieve. He delivered an overall majority of 80. And in particular, he enabled a significant number of conservative parliamentary candidates fighting the so-called red wall seats in the Midlands and the north of England, uh, one seat away from Labour that perhaps they never ever expected to win. In those circumstances, a prime minister is a strong position. And you could see how basically Tory MPs felt that he was able to walk on water. That mood has certainly been destroyed. And the risk, the immediate risk the Prime Minister faces is that basically Tory MPs who hitherto have been willing to trust his judgment have had a scintilla of doubt put into their mind about actually whether Boris' judgment is making the right judgment calls. Um, and that potentially will bleed to issues well beyond COVID, not least, of course, 
the fact that we have a government which is trying to negotiate a future relationship between the UK and the European Union, which is adamant, that is not willing to extend the so-called transition period at the end of this year, even though the talks, uh, both sides agree, have not been going terribly well so far, and that a decision about whether or not to apply for the extension has to be made in, what, four weeks' time. Um, now, uh, that's going to be a very, very big call for, uh, by the government, and, you know, it will be more difficult to pursue that. I think certainly uh, another area where the government could well find itself in trouble is it looks as though quite a lot of Conservative MPs are not happy with the suggestion that the UK should impose a quarantine on all uh, people coming into the UK uh, from abroad as from the 8th of June. That, that has major implications for the hospitality industry. Uh, there's clearly deep unease about that. And it would also be interesting to see what happens on Tuesday when the House of Commons comes back and is going to have to debate what to do about how it should hold its business. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House, is insistent that there should no longer be uh, any virtual intervention over Zoom. Uh, the Speaker is known to be unhappy about that. And again, you know, another judgment call, which Public Health England has said you cannot troop MPs through the lobbies for divisions. Another judgment call, which is being questioned. So it'll be interesting to see. We do have some issues coming up in the, ne in the next few weeks, and we will see whether or not Tory MPs still troop faithfully through the lobbies, or whether we begin to get the first signs of parliamentary dissent. And if that starts to happen, then that majority of 80 will no longer provide Boris Johnson with the ability to do anything that he wants in a way that hitherto it seemed uh, to be the case. And lastly, and briefly, alas, Professor, and I'm grateful for your time. Has this crisis, the corona crisis, helped the separatist cause in Scotland or harmed it. On one level, you could uh, argue, I do, you know, I oppose that cause. Uh, you could argue that uh, in a small island, uh, we, we really can't afford uh, to be building borders and walls, and the coronavirus proves it. Uh, we either sink or swim uh, together. On the other hand, the other side of the argument, uh, Nicola Sturgeon seems to have far more uh, support for the line she's taking uh, yeah. in handling it than Boris Johnson does in Britain. Please, your view uh, on that. Okay, well, certainly we've got a little bit of polling evidence on um, uh, how people would vote that have been taken since um, the coronavirus, although obviously it's, it's quite limited. It basically suggests that nothing has changed. But that means that it's basically 50-50, because what one thing that we do know is true is that the pursuit of Brexit has undermined support for staying inside the UK, and that whereas uh, once upon a time the polls were still basically showing only 45% for yes, as in the September 2014 referendum, for about a year now, they've been showing about 50% for yes, and that so far continues to be the case. So far as you know, its implications, well, yes, on that, on the one hand, I think those on the union side of the argument will say, look how... The UK was able to throw enormous resources, particularly trying to protect the labour market, protect people's jobs. And if in the end that works, and obviously there's a question mark about that, um, then it may well be able to say, look, you know, uh, Scotland was saved by the economic power of the UK. On the other hand, I think what we will probably see on the independent side of the argument is to go, Actually, the UK, including Scotland, has ended up with one of the highest levels of excess deaths in the wake of uh, COVID-19. 
Look at Denmark, look at Norway, nothing like as bad, handled much more effectively. And this just goes to show how actually small countries, if we were on our own, we could have locked down more quickly and we could have, uh, we could have avoided the difficulty. Now, whether or not, of course, an independent Scotland would have locked down more early than effectively was able to do within the framework of the United Kingdom, who knows? But I think, you know, those are some of the arguments we expect yeah. to go on. And in the end of the day, George, if you are a unionist, you'll, you're, you will pursue the first argument. If you are a supporter of independence, you'll support the second. And we therefore shouldn't necessarily assume that COVID-19 will change that many people's minds. Professor, as always, uh, a masterful overview. Thank you very much sure. indeed uh, for that, Professor Sir John Curtis. Uh, now, our next guest was the governor of Minnesota, the state now burning in the wake of the murder, I'll call it, uh, of George Floyd. He is a giant figure of a man, literally as well as metaphysically. I have met him uh, a couple of times and appeared on television platforms with him too. He's a man I admire greatly. He's a man that I publicly called on this show and all social media platforms to run himself as president of the United States. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, but he has kindly agreed uh, to join us by phone uh, from the United States, and I very much hope he's on the end of the line now. Uh, Governor Ventura, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Let me just straighten out the presidential stuff right away. The problem arose because, uh, the, the, you know, the third party is very difficult here in the United States. You have the two major parties, of course, the Democrats and the Republicans, which I am the member of neither and I never will be. Then your options, either the Libertarians or the Green Party. Well, unfortunately, the Green Party could not give me a clear path to the nomination. And so I would have had to lose my job, give up my health care in the time of a pandemic in which to try to run. And uh, I just didn't at this time think that was a very good decision to make in my life because I am 68 years old. So I'm the prime age and my wife, too, of, of the pandemic and, and all of that stuff. So I wasn't going to give up my health care and possibly my life to run for president. Well, uh, of course, that makes you a mere stripling compared to the two elderly gentlemen who are going to <laughs> battle it out. Uh, you'd be the young fellow, uh, you'd be referred to as the young fellow uh, in the race. I won't uh, press you on that. I have no wish to embarrass you. Just know that there are many of us I would dearly love to see you uh, in the ring uh, with those two aforementioned elderly gentlemen. Uh, well, I would like to too. I'd love to debate both of them, man. But unfortunately, the system we have here in the United States is controlled completely by those two parties. And really, I'll tell you this politically, the only way for the United States to get out of the mess they're in is to elect a third party president, someone who's not part of these two parties, because that's what happened in Minnesota. See, they need a common enemy. 
and the third party they fear more than anything. So if a third party were to win, let's say hypothetically I became the president, it would take me a mere three years, that's all, to have the two parties in bed together opposing me, the common sense middle. Does it happen in Minnesota that way? It's like a blueprint. It'll happen that way nationally because they fear a third entity more than they do themselves. They're, they're happy amongst themselves. We, we refer to them as one party, the corporate party, because they're both bought off by the corporations. Uh, and there's no possibility of uh, running just as an independent governor. Well, the problem is you can't they set the system up where you can't get ballot access. Okay. So you have to have a party out there that can gain you ballot access. See, I also favor abolishing the electoral college. I think it's ridiculous. It's outdated. I think the person that gets the most votes ought to win. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's a very radical it a very radical view that Well, you know, it was that way when I became a mayor. Yeah. I got the most votes and won. It was that way when I became governor. I got the most votes and won against the Democrats and Republicans. I've beaten them twice. So they do fear me. But see, mainstream media in America blackballs me. I'm not allowed on because that's one of the reasons I work for RT America. Uh, Governor, let's talk about uh, Minnesota. Uh, it must yep. be heartbreaking for you. I did read that uh, some of the streets that were on fire were, were but a couple of blocks away from where you grew up and lived uh, as a child. Uh, yep. give, yep. us this, give us your overview uh, of what happened uh, to George Floyd and subsequently to the whole state and now across the whole nation. Well, you know, one, one specific abuse by one cop on one individual is not going to cause what we just saw. This is something that's been building up for generations here in America. You know, we're a country that was founded and slavery existed here. We went through all the periods of getting rid of that. Then you had the horrible laws against minorities and black people. So it's been a battle being fought in the United States of America from our very existence. And it came to a head on this particular occasion because it's not the first time. This is not the first time black people have seen one of their own murdered by police officers on the street for really crimes that are almost laughable. I mean, the gentleman in New York allegedly was selling cigarettes. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. And, uh, and George <laughs> yeah, Floyd... And gentleman, uh, and well, Mr. Floyd, Mr. Floyd allegedly, what they said was he was passing a counterfeit $20 bill... And the cops are that worried about that? Who cares? I mean, I may pass one not even knowing. How do I know what money I get when it comes from the ATM machine or whatever? I don't look at it to see if it's, you know, counterfeit or not. You know, I yeah. could get busted for that. But the point is, is that I think the major problem we have here as a governor and what I've seen as a mayor, having done both, is the fact that we have a lot of police officers that are not well trained. The only trained police we have in Minnesota are the state troopers. 
the state highway patrol, they are like the governor's police force. They go to an actual police academy. All these other cities and that, you can go to college, take a two-year law enforcement degree, be smart enough and get hired. Well, that's not particularly, they, we need on-the-job training. We need to create police academies that teach young police how to, how to obey and what their job actually is on the job when they get there. And I say this as the background, my military background, I'm a former United States Navy frogman, Navy SEAL. So I know what it's like to be well-trained. I spent my first year in the Navy strictly being trained. And yet, we have police forces, they go to college, they take written exams and get a two-year degree, and then a police force hires them, whether they ride around for six months and then they're expected to know how to do proper police work. So I think it's inherent upon us as a society to start spending some money and training our police force so that we have well-trained officers out there who are there with the idea of protecting the public, not arresting them. Now, uh, I may be naive, uh, but if someone had told me that this kind of thing would happen and the response to it uh, would happen, uh, I would have guessed Los Angeles or, or New York uh, or uh, somewhere else. Somehow I had the view that Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, was a far more benign place. And yeah, well, what, we, what we saw was, was cold-blooded killing by that officer, and it was in Minneapolis. And it's not the first time. I mean, we had uh, the young gentleman, Fernando Castile, a couple years ago, was in his car with his girlfriend and his little baby, and was shot at point-blank range seven times by a police officer, and the guy got acquitted. Yeah. Now the, now, the problem I had with that is this. As a former trained Navy SEAL, you should never be required over two shots. Anything beyond two shots, and that's an ambush. And that's murder. In SEAL team, we allow two, and that's it. No, uh, it's not. And I'm speaking, well, and I'm speaking there very harshly as a commando-type mentality. You know, which I had to have 50 years ago when I when I was a Vietnam veteran. But the point being is that I think we're putting police out on the streets today that aren't necessarily well qualified psychologically to deal with the public. It's not just uh, policing, though. Of course, the proximate cause of all this uh, is uh, policing uh, and the perception of American police officers as a kind of occupying force. Uh, it's the systemic inequality and injustice felt by many communities, not just African Americans, but many other uh, communities in the United States. A sense oh yeah, there's no, there's no doubt about it. You know, it's, uh, we've been, and then we have a president who, in my opinion, fans the flames. He's, uh, yeah, I wish he'd just keep his mouth shut. Yeah, that's not likely to happen, of course. Uh, he's not going to keep his mouth shut, and Joe Biden can't safely open his mouth. <laughs> you're, ba you're, ba you're backing me into a corner again, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well,
Well, I mean, that is the problem, isn't it? That, uh, that, yeah, it is. That it these, truly is. These two, these two people uh, speak to no one or speak so much uh, that, uh, you know, one could only describe what comes out of their mouths in the most uh, scatological terms. Well, uh, well, then I'm going to fire a few shots back at you. Boris Johnson ain't exactly the best either. No, that's true. Uh, that's true. Uh, but he speaks Greek better than Donald Trump speaks English. Uh, but you're right. Uh, neither of the two of them, three of them, uh, are fit for purpose, which takes us back, I suppose, uh, to our original uh, discussion. How is uh, the United States going to get on top uh, of this? You've now mobilized your military inside well, your own country. Uh, yeah. Are they going to bring it to a, a close? Or is it going to get well, worse? You know, let's, let's look at what, okay, here in Minneapolis, the, the murder took place on Monday. The, 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 the protesting started right away Monday night. It went Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where violence occurred. Uh, buildings and material things were destroyed. Then, of course, the governor, they, they got, they decided on the tactic they were going to use. They implemented it last night, and I can happily say they took back the city completely without any bloodshed. And I think that's the important thing to look at here now, is uh, can they resume normal type life in the middle of the pandemic? Because don't forget we're dealing with that too. Uh, and return it. And so far, there's been no one has died. And I think we can look at that in and of itself as a positive. Plus, they took back the streets of Minneapolis. And you're right, that is right in the neighborhood I grew up in. I lived 18 years of my life, two blocks from Lake Street, which Lake Street is that major street that you're all seeing on TV. So that is my neighborhood. I grew up there. So that's why it has extra meaning to me, and now it's been destroyed. And I'm all for protest and all that. I, I support the First Amendment, the right to protest. I've protested in and out for many, many things, from way back Stop the Draft movement to things more modern today, the Equal Rights Amendment for women. So I'm a big believer in protesting, but I'm not a big believer. You cross the line when you start violating other people's rights by destroying property and by putting people in danger. And no, then, of course, and then as an elected official, you have to remember all elected officials, their major number one priority is general public safety. So therefore, that has to reign as number one above everything else. And it's a difficult spot to be a governor or a mayor and have to balance those decisions and choose one over the other. But uh, unfortunately, you have to. And at the end of the night, the best thing I can say is if you can look into the mirror and look at yourself eye to eye and feel comfortable, then you've made the right decision. Finally, Governor, and I'm grateful for your time indeed, um, the, the peculiar coincidence uh, of President Trump in the Rose Garden uh, employing a, a new set of sanctions against China because of its treatment of protesters 
in uh, in Hong Kong uh, was uh, was a bizarre uh, uh, mirror image uh, of what was happening that very minute in his own country. I've got to tell you from uh, from outside, it seems to most of us that the United States has so many of its own deep-seated problems, and God bless you, we hope you solve them. Uh, that, is this not a time when the United States should stop telling the Russians what to do, the Chinese what to do, the Venezuelans what to do, and actually concentrate on the horrendous problems that exist in your own country? I, I couldn't agree with you more, more wholeheartedly. That would have been the essence of my campaign if I had run. I, you know, my whole thing was we got enough problems of our own. I don't care what's happening. In fact, I will tell you my position and make you do your homework. I follow the teachings of Major General Smedley Butler. I don't know if you know of him. I don't. Forgive me. Well, he served 100 years ago, United States Marine. He didn't win one Congressional Medal of Honor. He won two. And Smedley Butler, here's what I believe in what he said. If I became president, we would pull all of our, we would shut down all our bases throughout the world. I would bring the United States military back home. We would use them to guard all our borders. We would have the safest borders on the planet. And we would no longer interfere. And we would take the vast amount of money that we spend. And we would start cleaning up the ocean with those machines and Instead of spending money on aircraft carriers and missiles, we'd buy. Have you seen those machines that clean up the ocean? Yes. Well, I'd buy two. I'd buy two hundred billion dollars worth of them with the defense bill and train the United States Navy how to use it, and we'd start cleaning up our oceans because we are not going to die because of what we do as mankind against each other. We're going to die from what we're doing to the planet. Governor, you're breaking my heart. Run, run, Jesse, run. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. And God bless all the good Americans. Governor. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I look forward to, hey, I got over to England, you know, but I, I, was, I was over in Manchester a year ago, but I had a lot of trouble over there. You guys don't speak English. <laughs> well, as Oscar Wilde said, we're two countries divided by a common language. Well, you know, it's funny, I was there with Carl Weathers, oh, yes. who, who is an African-American, and I felt good because Carl needed, we both needed an interpreter. <laughs> and I thought, well, at least it ain't me being just a white guy, because Carl's black and he don't understand either. <laughs> <laughs> Governor, thank you very much indeed for joining us. God bless you. And I hope uh, things turn out uh, the way uh, many of us listening to you tonight uh, would very much uh, like them to. Governor Jesse Ventura, former governor of Minnesota, putative presidential candidate. But uh, as you heard there, that now looks unlikely. Uh, the uh, vote, well, the riots in the U.S. inevitable, A, yes, 82%, B, no, 18%. You can vote on my Twitter feed, 572 people only. That's a little less than I would have thought have voted on my Twitter feed, which is at George Galloway. Chris Hedges, the authoritative and extremely wonderful 
author, writer, activist, a, an ordained Christian minister, and a man who spent a lot of time teaching people in the prison system, a man with reach into the African-American community, was first asked to come on the show this evening uh, to talk about the late and great Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Little did we know that a new chapter in history would be raging by the time Chris Hedges got here. But I'm glad to say he joins us now, my RT America colleague. Chris, welcome as always. We will talk a bit about the book, but uh, let's talk about the chapter of American history now being written. I don't know if you had the chance to hear my interview with Governor Ventura earlier in the show. Uh, he, as you would expect, was very clear uh, about the extent of the problem. I suspect he thinks that Minneapolis's problem is on its way to being solved. I'm not sure I agree with him about that, but even if he's right, uh, what about the rest of America? Where is this going? We have a saying here, uh, a riot goes up uh, like a rocket, but it comes down like a burnt stick. Uh, in other words, it really achieves uh, nothing very much. Is that how you fear uh, this will all end up? No, I think that the systemic problems in the United States are so severe, uh, and this was the catalyst uh, just another murder. Remember, a thousand people are murdered a year in the United States by police forces, almost all of them unarmed, and almost all poor people of color. And then you have all sorts of injuries that are never reported. Uh, and you've seen with the, the COVID-19 virus uh, a further uh, assault on uh, particularly poor people of color. Number one, because of an inadequate healthcare system, uh, and the underlying stresses of living in what Malcolm X called these internal colonies, uh, you have a disproportionately high rate of deaths and infections. Of course, these people are also frontline workers, so they don't have a choice. They can't uh, sit at home uh, like the professional class. Um, but uh, I would say this is the culmination of years of assault, um, which, by the way, the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, was instrumental in creating uh, the doubling of our prison population, uh, half of, we have 2.3 million people locked in cages in this country, uh, half of whom, by the way, have never been charged with uh, physically harming another person. Uh, these were the result of these draconian drug laws, uh, the doubling, tripling, even quadrupling of sentences for nonviolent crimes, uh, the militarization of the police, that's how you get uh, in city streets in the United States. I'm talking about police forces dressed. You've probably seen images of them uh, in Kevlar vests, in black tactical uniforms with gas masks and Kevlar helmets and long-barreled weapons and military-grade equipment. Uh, armored personnel carriers with 50 caliber machine guns pointed at uh, unarmed protesters is something we've seen and saw going back to Ferguson. Uh, and so uh, I think this is far more severe than uh, a kind of uprising or riot or revolt against the murder uh, of another black man. Uh, I think that 
this uh, has pushed people, especially people uh, on the lower end of the economic spectrum, although we have to be clear, half of the American public either lives in poverty or a category called near poverty, the official poverty line for a family of four is $24,500, but all economists will tell you that, in fact, uh, even on $30,000 a year, most families are uh, thrust in tremendous debt peonage. Uh, so that's half the country. Uh, you have the unemployment benefits are running out in July. Uh, the moratorium on evictions is uh, up. Um, the ruling elites have passed, and I'm including the Democrats, these uh, uh, insane uh, bailout uh, bills, which have uh, essentially turned money, 85% of it plus, uh, over to the billionaire class, the cruise industry, uh, and the Democrats have been as complicit in this as the Republicans. So I think you're seeing, uh, I would use the word revolt, uh, against a system that has not only lost all credibility, but become so predatory uh, without any kind of regulation or restraint that people have had enough. So I, I don't see this going away. Uh, on the subject of looting, you could describe uh, the $500 billion Wall Street coined uh, in the last few weeks uh, in the funds that you refer to. Uh, that would be pretty spectacular level of looting. Uh, the looting of the public purse after the crash in 2008 uh, ditto. Uh, but of course, you're living in a country that was built on looting. And the, the Native Americans had their whole country looted from them. And the uh, black people are only there in America, most of them, uh, because they were dragged there in chains as slaves. If you think about it that way, and forgive me if I've upset you in any way, uh, it's, it's, it's essentially unstable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, and you know who wrote about this very presciently was uh, James Baldwin. Uh, uh, yeah, of course, the country has been built, I mean, all empires are built on looting, the British Empire is no exception. Sure. Uh, the difference was that we essentially, because of geography, uh, you know, uh, created kind of an internal empire that carried out genocide against Native. I mean, this country was built on the genocide of the Native indigenous peoples and slavery. Uh, and uh, those are its two original sins. Uh, you know, and, and you look at these militarized police forces, they are uh, the latest iteration of the old uh, slave patrols. I mean, there's just a complete continuum. P prisons in this country are, are, are virtually plantations. Again, it's another form of neo-slavery. A million people in our prison system work for for-profit corporations, and you have prisons across the country approaching corporations saying you don't need to use sweatshop workers in Vietnam or Bangladesh or China. We have sweatshop workers right here. Uh, so Victoria's Secret, McDonald's uniforms, it's all made within the prison system. And in many states, these people are not compensated at all. Uh, and at best, they're compensated about 22 cents, 20 cents an hour. Um, so yes, uh, uh, the real looting, you're right, uh, has come uh, courtesy of this package, which has, uh, the Democrats approved it. It's given Trump cronies and appointees uh, and the Federal Reserve the ability to hand out four trillion dollars to politically connected corporations. Uh, and what they're doing is, uh, before our eyes, essentially stomp to the ground. 
um, the aspirations of progressives who uh, gathered around Bernie Sanders. So you have private equity firms and fossil fuel companies that have gotten, because of, uh, in the excuse of the COVID pandemic, uh, huge new tax breaks. And they turn right around and, and put that money uh, uh, back into the political parties uh, in our system of legalized uh, bribery. And let's be clear, you know, the Democrats who uh, could have used the crisis to expand uh, uh, Medicare for all for, you know, uh, we don't have a, a rational health system like you do, uh, instead gave the money to uh, the big insurance companies, uh, these including, uh, by the way, uh, within the bill passing, uh, passing uh, uh, part of the bill is that they bail out what they call trade associations, which are just lobbying groups. Uh, and, and the political action committees of these lobbying groups have given over uh, $191 million of campaign cash to lawmakers in the past two decades. So uh, I think what you're seeing is the, uh, the final delegitimization of the state itself and a popular response. Yes, I mean, I wrote this in the week that uh, for the first time in my lifetime, perhaps the first time ever, uh, the, there's an existential challenge or threat to the legitimacy uh, of the state in both the United States and potentially here in Britain. And uh, in France, we'll be talking to one of our yellow vest uh, friends in the, in the next hour. Uh, the, so these are not just crises of here today, gone tomorrow, governments, prime ministers, policies. Uh, they are actually uh, a question mark uh, over uh, whether or not this can continue this way. Is that how you see it? Yeah, and, and it can't. Uh, so there's only two options. Uh, as Aristotle wrote over 2,000 years ago, uh, when an oligarchic elite seizes control, then your two choices are tyranny or revolution. And those, I think, are the only two stark choices in front of us. Whether uh, the incredible power that's been amassed into the hands of this corporate cabal, uh, which is, of course, international and global and just as pernicious in Britain as it is in the United States. Well, actually, it's more pernicious in the United States because we have no safety net. I mean, part of this COVID crisis is that uh, you have 43 million Americans uh, who are about to lose uh, private health insurance, that's added on top of 80 million Americans who either have no insurance or uh, are not adequately insured. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I worry that we are headed, especially with a figure like Trump in the White House, to a very kind of overt uh, police state. Um, because I, I think that the population has... Uh, and uh, certainly those, uh, the working poor and, and the working class have just been pushed over the edge. I mean, we are about to see a kind of cascading effect. People can't pay their rents. Well, already a fifth of the American public and the renter class have not been able to pay rents to landlords. Uh, but that number is going to exponentially rise. People are, will, will not be able to pay their credit card debt. We're talking about 25% unemployment by this summer uh, without adequate unemployment insurance. Uh, so, uh, I mean, one of the things that I find quite amazing is the utter myopia on the part of the ruling elites, the inability. And of course, they're so divorced from the real world in the same way that the courtiers at Versailles were divorced from what was happening in France. But they are that 
disconnected because all they they spend all their time on private corporate jets and hanging out with the donor class. We never forget that these figures like Pelosi, she's one of the wealthiest figures in the Congress. So they don't they don't get it. Um, they have been punishing uh, the American working class uh, now all going all the way back to the Clinton betraying the working class uh, and and uh, they're all they know how to do is feed the system. Uh, but I, I think at this point, what they're doing is self-destructive uh, and, and dangerous. Uh, and, and I would say another difference, an important difference between British culture and American culture is that we are a deeply violent society. Uh, all of these mass shootings, uh, the fact that uh, citizens uh, are, are allowed to over, I think over a million and a half uh, are armed with, uh, those are the ones we know about, armed with essentially automatic weapons. Uh, they, and we, 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 we criminalize uh, gun ownership for uh, people of color, especially in urban enclaves. Uh, but I, you know, I come from rural Maine, so all, even all my relatives had gun collections. My neighbor across the street had 23 weapons in the house. And this rural-urban divide uh, is... Uh, one, and of course, that, uh, it, you know, it's the, rur the rural communities that back Trump. But that rural-urban divide was something I also saw covering the war in Yugoslavia. And, and Trump, who's becoming more and more beleaguered and more and more exposed for his ineptitude, uh, will accelerate the calls for incitement to violence. Um, I mean, he will stop at nothing. And then there is a legitimate fear that he will even move to try and somehow postpone or announces fraudulent the elections in November. That, that's not without, that's not out of, that's not fantasy. That's a, that's a real possibility. Now we have, uh, uh, we have one candidate uh, who cannot safely be allowed to speak and another candidate uh, who cannot stop speaking, although every statement that he makes tosses more uh, petrol on the flames in America. Uh, which of those two is going to benefit electorally, uh, do you think? Uh, well, is... the the look, the largest blo voting block in the United States doesn't vote. That's 100 million people. Uh, and they don't vote because the system is fixed against them. Uh, and in fact, Biden is the worst candidate between the two in the sense that um, Trump inherited the system. Biden built it. Half of my students wouldn't be in prison, but for Biden. Um, Biden is was at the forefront of essentially wresting back what they call the law and order issue from the Republican Party uh, and 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 bragged about expanding the death penalty. I mean, this there are public statements. Uh, so uh, Biden has been a segregationist. He was against busing. Uh, he's he's awful. Uh, and, you know, uh, given the kind of pain and suffering that has been visited, especially on poor people of color, it's so insulting uh, to somehow say that they have to support the candidacy, candidacy of one of the principal architects of uh, deindustrialization, militarized police, mass incarceration, and the rewriting of the laws to terrorize uh, poor people, largely but for drug offenses. This was all Biden. Uh, and, and so I think it's, it shows how the system is seizing up. Uh, the system is unable to respond. It responds to its own needs and the further consolidation of both power and wealth by this corporate cabal uh, that has carried out a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion. 
uh, but it's not responding to the public, even in the midst of both the pandemic and now the social unrest that's sweeping across the country. Uh, and, uh, and that's very frightening because they, uh, you know, the, it, the, it's out of control. Uh, and, uh, you know, who's worse? I mean, you know, we personalize our elections, but of course, the, 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 the institutional, the, the structural uh, edifice that has been built is the one that perpetuates both the police violence and the economic uh, consolidation of wealth by a tiny elite. They talk about the 1%, but 0.1% uh, control 20% of the wealth in the United States. And now we have watched uh, with the, the pandemic, uh, Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, the richest man in the world. Amazon paid no federal taxes last year. In fact, it got a rebate. You know, these people are, are, are using the crisis to rake it in. Uh, I think the billionaire class has increased their own wealth by over $400 billion. So uh, it, 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 has, it has all of the hallmarks. You go back and read Crane Brinton's Anatomy of a Revolution. It has all of the hallmarks of a a, a revolutionary or pre-revolutionary system. Now that can be crushed with militarized police and wholesale surveillance. And we've already, especially for the poor, revoked due process and habeas corpus. Uh, but I think that's where we're at. I would not describe this as riots over the killing of uh, the murder by police of a black man uh, in and of itself. Uh, I think there was just one killing too many and people finally said, you know, it, it, and, and there is a complete understanding, I know, because I teach in the prison, they understand that it's the system. It, it's not Trump or Biden or, you know, a, a particular political figure. Chris Hedges, we're going to have to talk about the book uh, another time because your discourse on what's happening right now was so fascinating. Uh, please forgive me for that and come back, if you will, another time to discuss Howard Zinn's wonderful book, A People's History. It is, and I, I taught States. it in the prison. Yeah, I know that you taught it in prison. That's one of the reasons why it's so germane yeah. uh, to right. this. Thank you, Chris, uh, Thanks, very George. much indeed uh, for joining us. But let's take some calls. And of course, we go first to Minneapolis, where Michael wants to talk about what's been happening there. Michael, uh, my condolences, my commiserations. Uh, what's, what's happening right now in Minneapolis? Uh, thank you, George. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, people are hurting. People are still organizing and protesting, but it's like nothing I've ever seen. Um, I live very near downtown. My apartment's boarded up. A lot of um, neighborhood businesses are boarded up. Um, people are increasingly angry. The protests, uh, there was some looting the first couple of nights, but uh, the police showed a lot, of, um, a lot of restraint at that time. Um, however, um, as the week has worn on, the police has become more and more aggressive, and we're seeing a lot more injuries um, and even deaths across the country and in Minneapolis. Um, it's sort of a terrible situation. I sort of I want to speak to uh, before I forget the comment you made about uh, Minneapolis seeming like a benign place. Now, one thing you'll know if you live in the United States is that uh, news only occurs on the coast, so the major media virtually only covers the east and west coast anything that happens in the midwest they cover on a need have to cover basis they ignore us as much as they possibly can just off the top of my head i can think of uh 
George Floyd, obviously, Philando Castile, Jamar Clark, Thurman Blevins, David Smith, Terrence Franklin, Travis Jordan, Ronald Davis, Sam Holmes. Those are just the names I can think of without even, without even trying of uh, black men who have been murdered by the police, uh, by the police somewhere in the Twin Cities. And let's not forget, uh, there was also uh, Justine Ruzchek, who is an Australian citizen who called to be a Good Samaritan, reported sexual assault, and as she walked up to the car, was, you know, summarily executed for virtually no reason. Um, I think what's been really upsetting for me is that these protests have been largely peaceful. Um, now, obviously, anytime people are angry, that spills over. And like I said, they were showing restraint for a while. But once they started instituting curfews and escalating it, I saw you could see the media narrative start to change. So they started to cover it as protest. And as the week wore on, you know, you'd look in the in the paper of record or you'd look in uh, on CNN and they kept saying when they were covering Minneapolis, they're like, oh, they're just letting these protesters protest. Why aren't the police taking control? You have Chris Cuomo saying, why aren't the police taking control of the streets? Don Lemon saying, how can they let this go? And I feel like there was a, there was a media narrative to sort of give police and the National Guard the, the A-OK to say, OK, you can brutalize the protesters now. It's going to be all right. If you'll notice, just a couple weeks ago, we had, you know, I haven't seen any. I mean, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we had people with assault rifles uh, marching on the Michigan Capitol. Yeah, they took saying, over oh, the building. Have to open it up. They took over the building, yeah. and, and they were protesting because they couldn't get a haircut. Yes, yeah, you 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 hit the you hit the nail on the head, George. And none of them were none of them were injured. None of them were attacked. There weren't any deaths. You know, whereas now in these protests. They're sending the message. They're even attacking journalists. That poor uh, woman, I think her last name was Lauren Tirado, yeah. had her eye shot out. She's now blind, and she's now blind uh, from a rubber bullet in her left eye, I think, yeah. Yes, yes, she is. I mean, and then, and what's even more alarming is once they sent the National Guard out uh, the last couple of nights to enforce the curfew, uh, I don't know if you've seen the video, but I, some people not, I mean, in a, in a very quiet street, uh, in South Minneapolis, were sitting on their porch, and the police and or the the guards started screaming, "Get inside! Get inside!" And they started lighting up the porch with rubber bullets. So I want to go back to I want to quick. Uh, let me uh, let me stop you. Let me oh, stop ahead. you on on yeah. that phrase. You see, that was uh, the most chilling thing of all for me. Uh, these were American National Guardsmen firing at American citizens on their own property and using the very words uh, that uh, thanks to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks we know uh, the controller uh, of the helicopter gunships in Baghdad, the very words, light them up, uh, by which he meant eviscerate, incinerate human beings. Light them up was what the controller told uh, the machine gun men on board those helicopters. And this is the language uh, of National Guardsmen in Minneapolis. Last word to you, Michael. Um, yeah, it, it, it's exactly that. Um, they're, they're totally unwilling. I think the other thing that's really alarming and stoked the protest in the beginning part is that, uh, you know, the mayor of Minneapolis called for all four officers to be arrested. It took four days to arrest one of them. The others are not arrested. The police chief won't do it. He will not 
He will not arrest these men. And to go back, I want to I want to just quick on what Governor Ventura said. He says, oh, the pol- they need better uh, training. training. Well, the truth is, the truth is, since 9-11 happened, there was all this leftover military in the run up to the big wars. There was all this leftover military qu- equipment, which was seized by local militaries all over the country. So they have tanks. They have they look like, again, you said you just said it yourself. It's like they were invading their own country. Well, they have the equipment to do it, and many of them are trained by uh, former uh, military personnel also. And the last thing, you should have taken my call last week because then I would have given you something for your Jesse Ventura interview. I have it on, uh, on good authority that Jesse Ventura on June 2nd, in a couple days, is having a meeting with several prominent people, including a uh, billionaire environmentalist, we're talking about funding his campaign. So he, I think he was playing possum with you a little bit, George. I think I, I would watch for that, that meet, what comes out of that meeting this week. But obviously my main concern is that my city is burning and hurting yeah, and people but, are protesting. Let's hope you're right about that, Michael. I need to press on. Uh, wonderful to hear from you again. Sophia is in Kent. We need to hear from her. Sophia, go ahead, please. Hi, George. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Um, Look, that, that was a great call, your last call for Michael. I just want to firstly say, you know, rest in peace, George Floyd, and prayers to his family and Amen. friends. Amen. How can you watch that video and not weep? That was cold-blooded murder. Yep. I'm haunted. I'm absolutely haunted by the videos we've seen of the slaughtering of African-Americans by the police over the last few years. And that's not to say that racism has got worse. It's just getting filmed. And that's a great quote. That. That's from Will Smith, you know. That's right, yeah. Racism's yeah, not getting worse. It's getting filmed. It's absolutely exactly. true. Exactly. And, you know, there's rarely any justice. Usually the, the officers are acquitted and then people become hashtags and, it, and it's almost forgotten about. So really what I'm saying is I'm playing with everyone is to get involved if they can safely. You don't necessarily have to march, even if it's donating to causes, because the revolution's not getting televised. As Michael said, the narrative's already changed in the mainstream media. You know, they're showing looting, they're showing uh, shops burnt out, which of course is happening. But goodness me, thank God for social media, because you're seeing, what you're seeing is class solidarity. You're seeing people come together, set up mutual aid stations, uh, setting up food stations, praying together, dancing together, sharing stories, having minutes of silence, and are still being brutally attacked by the police. We must all stand in solidarity with them and do not get fooled by the liberals and the elites telling you that there's some outside agitators. They've already blamed the Russians. They've wheeled out prominent uh, famous black celebrities telling people to go home and vote. Who are they going to go home and vote for? I mean, <laughs> Biden's not going to help their situation. Well, uh, Biden, helped to, Biden helped to uh, create the situation they're in. He was one of the architects of the situation. But the point Absolutely. I made right at the beginning of the show, Sophia, uh, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn the village down uh, just to feel its warmth. It's an African proverb uh, and therefore ought to be uh, able to cross the ocean as the Africans were forced to do and be understood in America, surely. 
Well, that's fair. And look, and I just want to say as well that it's very easy for us to point the finger, but, you know, here in the UK, if you are black, I think you're, you're, you're more likely to be stopped by cops for a stop and search, nine times more likely than a, the white person. You know, the Windrush scandal, Grenfell Tower, recent uh, witch hunt against black activists by our so-called Social Democratic Party. Mm. Um, you know, they've been kicked. And can I just mention as well, the Labour Leagues. You know, we have the first female black MP crying in a toilet. It's not been addressed. Nothing's been done about it. So, they're, you know, the empty platitudes on Facebook. I mean, Keir Starmer, like you say, the wooden plank, is a week behind with the news on everything else. How dare he say anything about well, it? Well, uh, uh, Biden famously plagiarised uh, Neil Kinnock. Uh, what uh, Keir Starmer is doing is plagiarizing Joe Biden. Uh, and by plagiarizing, I mean he's really saying nothing at all. Sophia in Kent, thanks for that wonderful, heartfelt call. Now, every so often, uh, Julian's defense team uh, managed to get into the court to try and protest, you might say, about the cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, that is being visited upon their client. And the latest of those attempts is tomorrow uh, in a London courtroom. Uh, over from France is a man who is the publisher and writer, Emeric Monville. Emeric is the author of Julian Assange in Mortal Danger, a book in French uh, on Assange's U.S. extradition case. We had the pleasure of hearing from him before. He's the yellow vest I referred to earlier. A top man, Emmerich Monville, I hope, is with me on Skype now. Emmerich, welcome uh, back uh, to England. Uh, the uh, hearing is tomorrow. Have you got high hopes for it? Oh, yes. Uh, hello, George. Uh, I'm glad to see you again. Uh, the, the hearing on uh, tomorrow is, uh, is said to be a routine uh, hearing uh, to, to renew uh, uh, Assange's detention until the, the extradition uh, hearing uh, that should restart on September the 7th. But uh, I think we, we, we will send some, some people, we'll be at the, the hearing, uh, hearing tomorrow, uh, because uh, we, we are always at this stage, we are always glad to have, if we can have, some proof of, uh, of life. We, we have sent uh, doctors to, who published uh, reports, if, if, even if they c couldn't uh, have real access to, to, to him through this uh, bulletproof box, as you know. And uh, besides, uh, um, when, when we see some, some news from the, the UK, we, we, can, we can't settle for truncated and, and verified uh, information. Um, I, I think that that's, that's the, the latest twist in this case. The, the Daily Mail uh, recently published a photograph illustrating as um, uh, Assange and Morris uh, as a couple, and a visibly retouched photograph because that it shows the, the couple embracing in the streets of a city with, uh, with the beautiful blue skies and maybe uh, birds. But you, uh, how can you imagine a, a sky? Well, well, I recall that uh, Mrs. Morris met Ju Julian in uh, 2015 while he was in confinement. Uh, so this photograph, for instance, is not is not credible. It's um, fake. That's, that's, it's, a uh, fake but, it's a fake photograph, and yet it was think, published in Britain's uh, biggest newspaper. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a hard nut to crack. I think, and uh, when I see, I'm surprised that again, according to this Daily Mail, the, the credit for the photograph goes to to Mr. Joseph Farrell, who is uh, presented as the spokes, spokesman of WikiLeaks. And maybe it's a, an explanation either for the Daily Mail or for, from for, from Mr. Farrell. And uh, another example, uh, in, in order to help WikiLeaks from abroad, because it's it's important to have a vision from abroad. Uh, we we have been asked to to help uh, to donate to the Courage Foundation and uh, and send our our checks. To, to, to its center, but uh, but where where sh shall we uh, send our checks? Brace yourself, it's in very strict New York, and why directly to the to the U.S.? Uh, have they gone crazy? Uh, do they want us to to be enlisted, to be blacklisted to the U.S.? Uh, you uh, all your your show was on the U.S. You know how democratic uh, a place to be it is. So, um, uh, but I, I think that the situation is is of justice in in Britain is is a matter of great of great answer. It's no no better in France. Uh, I don't lecture the British on this, but it's but it's terrible. It's in a sorry plight, and I think that's faced with a, such a denial of justice, it seems obvious to me that this campaign of support must be international, as internationalized as much as possible. Uh, I, I think it can really tip the scales in favor of, uh, of Julian. Uh, and for, for instance, I don't understand why uh, British defense doesn't, does not make greater use of the UN report on Assange's torture, uh, or even the fact that the, the UN, the, no less than the, the UN, believes uh, that Assange should uh, not simply not be extradited, but uh, is innocent, is innocent of any crime and should be released right now. Um, I, I think they should have lodged a complaint against the British uh, justice. And so uh, let, let me draw your attention to the fact that uh, Assange's fiancée and mother of their, of their two children is, is worried, deeply worried about his life. And that's not just a natural feeling of a, of a wife. She, she is a professional lawyer. She has studied in Great Britain. She, she knows how, how to protect herself with the law. And if she is terrified, it proves that justice in Britain is, is in a sorry plight. Um, uh, she claims she claims that uh, the American intelligence tried to, to, to steal a nappy, or as they say, a diaper uh, of one of her children in order to steal his, his DNA, all in the Ecuadorian embassy, but above all on the British soil. Uh, what will be the next step? Will the, the British system uh, allow, uh, is going to allow Assange to be, to be burned in public places, like uh, John of Arc, for instance? Well, uh, on that note, uh, I'm, uh, Joan of Arc was a top, uh, top girl uh, from my point of view, uh, and uh, so is Julian Assange and his missus. Emmerich Monville, thanks very much for joining us on a very busy night. Forgive me, I can't uh, uh, spend as long with you as I would have liked. Uh, were the riots in the U.S. inevitable? A, yes, 80%, and B, no, 20%. You can vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway, at least for the next uh, 10 minutes uh, or so. Uh, Matt on YouTube says, George, you're a better speaker than the Prime Minister and the Plankov Wood Europhile Kier. Thanks, Matt. It's a low bar, but I'll take the compliment. Thank you very much indeed. Red, white and black says, George, that jacket makes you look like Arkwright 
from open all hours. Who's Arkwright? What's open all hours? Either that or a warehouse foreman. <laughs> this schmutter is best suede. I bought this about, oh, best part of 20 years ago. And it's still uh, doing me fine. A warehouse foreman. <laughs> that I recognize. But who's Arkwright? And what is open all hours? Mike, I think the riots are made worse by the length of the lockdown. Not any one death. And YouTube user says, the system, institutions of power, will never be fair. Those who have power will always protect it with their wealth or use violence to keep it. And Reptilian Eye says, how some of the cops acted here in Cleveland was disgraceful. It was very strange. Now, uh, Dr. Ranjit Brar, been with us from the beginning of this crisis, is very kind, generous with his time. I hope will stay with us at least until the end of this crisis, which, if I'm any judge, isn't going to be any time soon. Let's see if the doctor agrees. Moats medic, Dr. Ranjit Bra, welcome back to the show and your hair's growing in fine. Tell your <laughs> wife uh, she's got a career to fall back on if, uh, if the medicine uh, it doesn't work out. Uh, the um, schools are going back tomorrow. A good thing or a bad thing? Thanks, George. Lovely to be back with you. I'm sorry about uh, uh, getting cut off last week. Um, it's a it's a choice. You're, you're, I, I heard your poll. It's a choice that's been taken out of my hands. Uh, my school, my children's school, although my, my eldest son is in year six, uh, will not be opening tomorrow. And that's a decision that the school have taken. So it's very clear that a large group of the staff at schools are not happy and there are individual councils where they are supporting that decision not to reopen schools but there are um, many voices within the teaching profession who are remain unsure about the safety and remain unhappy now i live in london uh, my family go to school in london and the case presentation in london is probably now one of the lowest in the country which is a remarkable turnaround but as we were saying last week, uh, at the point I got cut off, probably even in the hardest hit areas of the world, we're looking at only about 10%, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Sweden, where um, they didn't have a full lockdown and they thought they would generate herd immunity on that basis. They think in the capital of Sweden, perhaps as, as few as 7% of the population have actually been exposed. And that's despite the numbers of cases and the numbers of casualties now in England we're talking about 275,000 cases 38,000 cases officially uh, deaths officially and as uh, again as we've said probably in excess of 60,000 deaths so far at this early stage really and so I can understand completely why teachers and schools are unhappy um, to go back to school at this point. Now uh, it's not just the schools is it? We've all seen the pictures, uh, and some of us have seen with our own eyes. Uh, the parks and green space in London, uh, chock-a-block, uh, like a, a, a normal bank holiday. Uh, you wouldn't know there was a pandemic on at all. That must run terrifying risks. And as a medic yourself, you must be frightened that the original fear of the health service being overwhelmed, which was the reason for the lockdown, 
hasn't gone away, has it? It hasn't, George. And if you speak to anyone who's worked in an intensive care unit, a nurse or a doctor who has seen just how unwell patients are when they present um, needing ventilation, the volume of cases that they were having to deal with, despite closing down all normal work, dealing with two or three times their new normal caseload, opening up entire wards to deal with the virus. So it's true that while the first wave is past its peak. That's, that's unquestionably true. And fewer cases are currently in hospital, though there are exceptions. If you look at the Western Hospital, there seems to have been a, a massive outbreak in Western Supermare Hospital, and they've closed down their hospital. So it's by no means a virus that has disappeared from the scene. It's very much prevalent in the community. And, you know, it, it's the universal fear among clinicians who've been dealing with this problem uh, that relaxing... Uh, relaxing lockdown without having a really much better system of testing and tracing and isolation in place means that there's a very substantial risk of a second wave. And I've been accused, every time I say anything like this, I, I get a wave of kind of social media response that accuse me of fear-mongering. And, I'm, I, you know, for me personally, I think I probably already had the virus. I've not yet been tested. Antibody testing is being rolled out as a trial at my hospital, and I will get it, so I'll know one way or another. So it's not any longer for my own personal safety that I'm you know, in any kind of fear of here. But um, there are real consequences, and there are, there are models. There's a, there's a paper in The Lancet based upon the latest figures in terms of prevalence and mortality, as we've seen in Britain, that says still, if this runs its course over several ways, we still may be looking at between 150,000 and 600,000 people who lose their lives because of coronavirus. And I'm afraid to say that despite all of the scandal around Dominic Cummings, despite all of the promises from Matt Hancock, we've not put in place the kind of measures necessary to know where the virus is. You know, China has dealt with this problem. It still hasn't had an increase in its cases. Essentially, it's had 82,000 cases for the last four months and no more deaths for the last four months. So it is possible to come out of lockdown. Of course, I want to come out of lockdown, but we are not following the example of China that will allow us to do so safely. Actually, Vietnam is uh, even uh, more strikingly uh, successful. Not a single death uh, in Vietnam. Uh, Kerala, as we talked about earlier, a communist-run state uh, in India, which is otherwise a sea of uh, illness and disease, uh, Kerala stands out uh, like uh, like a, a jewel uh, in uh, in the crown. There, um, it is surely not just a coincidence uh, that Britain and the United States are the two worst countries in the world. As a matter of fact, if you were to draw a line, I know uh, there are some countries on. Uh, that cross that line, like South Korea, for example. But generally speaking, if you drew a line, it would be the most libertarian, free market, finance capital countries on the bad side of the line, and the most socialist countries on the other side of that line. Wouldn't that be right? I think that's a, a very poignant observation, George, um, and one that won't have escaped uh, really world popular opinion. 
Uh, we're living in a world which is deeply polarized, where six to eight people, the billionaires, the richest on earth, have as much wealth as half the world's population. Uh, and within nations, we've seen that poverty is a real predictor of both getting coronavirus and having a poor outcome and dying from coronavirus. That's true within rich countries like Britain. It's true within rich countries like the United States. It's true um, on a global scale, that the poorer the country, the worse it's likely to be. But the, you know, what fights that trend is, of course, the level of public health measures taken by the government in question and how people-centered they are and how they're prepared to mobilize their economy and their efforts to protect the people and put that first on their agenda. And where Britain and the United States have done particularly poorly is that they have governments, regimes, uh, administrations, which are by definition, by philosophy, uh, economic-centered. And when they say economic-centered, they mean really the ability of multi-billionaires to freely exploit labor, of capital to freely exploit labor, to maximize profit regardless of any consequences. And they are in favor of a kind of libertarian, laissez-faire, free market capitalism, which means there's no role for the state. They, they fundamentally, even though they're running the state of their countries, are against the concept of a state. They want to run it down. And therefore, they're not really in favor in the United States of a health care available to all, irrespective of wealth, and therefore 60 or 70 million people have no access to healthcare, more because of the massive wave of unemployment that's come from this crisis. And in Britain, our government have been moving for actually 40 years, not just the last 10 years of austerity, but Labour and Tory alike for 40 years towards that American model, which would deprive us of our much-loved institution, the NHS, which Boris Johnson has, I'm afraid, rather hypocritically celebrated on getting out of ITU, but his policies of his government, and even driven by the legislation they've introduced around COVID, has been accelerating that privatization of our much-beloved National Health Service. Ponder that point that you made, uh, Doctor, uh, and if you heard uh, Chris Hedges' earlier interview, uh, if 60 to 70 million Americans had no health insurance before and 45 million Americans are losing their health benefits uh, because of the economic situation, we're in a situation where the leader of the free world, uh, the richest and most powerful country still on the earth, has 100 million people with no health care, no cover uh, guaranteed uh, to them. It's a pretty damning indictment, isn't it? It really is, George. And, you know, a, a, a while ago, the socialist movement put forward a document in which they said it was socialism or barbarism. And precisely what they mean by that is illustrated by this, that the richest countries on earth who have drawn wealth for hundreds of years from the exploitation of the poorest countries on earth and their own working population are unable to provide actually even basic necessities unless they're forced to do so. You know, they talk about the freedoms of the United States, the land of the free, the home of the brave. Many of us have close friends in the United States and, and culturally have looked to it because we've been influenced throughout, uh, by it throughout our lives. But that economic system now is no longer even loved and cherished by the United States because they are falling victim to that economic system, which really crushes them. And they're becoming increasingly aware of the incredible, incredibly uneven distribution of wealth, which means that hundreds of millions, as you say, uh, really suffer uh, in want 
as if they were living really in a parallel third world country, even though they, they are, you know, there are people in the United States who are almost like, like gods, like emperors in terms of their opulence, wealth, power and influence on world economy and world affairs. Well, Doctor, uh, that quote, socialism or barbarism, came from Rosa Luxemburg, who, if I'm not wrong, on this very day uh, was uh, dragged from the river uh, following her murder uh, in Germany. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us as always. I hope to see you again next week. That's Dr. Ranjit Bra, NHS consultant, physician and surgeon. Would you send your children to school tomorrow? A, yes, 29%. B, no, 71%. You've got uh, 40 minutes to vote on that on my Twitter feed, uh, at George Galloway. Uh, let's hear from Chris in Colchester, who wants to talk about hypocrisy. I'm always up for that. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, Hi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I've just noticed a lot of the far left have um, they've been outraged, um, getting hysterical about people in beaches on beaches in England yeah. and in parks. Yeah. But they seem very supportive of the rioters in in America who are mm. hand in hand. Um, they don't seem too worried about social distancing mm. in that case. I just mm -hmm. find that a bit odd. Yeah. Well, it's a fair enough point. Uh, I don't think it's uh, hypocrisy uh, in the sense that. Uh, in the one case, people are choosing to go and sit on a beach and uh, uh, expose themselves to the uh, cancerous rays of the sun uh, for pleasure. Uh, the people who are out on the streets uh, of the United States are doing so in outrage at someone's cold-blooded murder. There is a slight difference there, isn't there, Chris? Yeah, there's a slight difference. I wouldn't go that far about being on the beach. I mean, I'm sure people put suntan lotion on. Well, and uh, being outside, bit, bit, mm. <laughs> vitamin D is, is good for us. And, yeah, uh, the it, is, it is, there's no doubt. Uh, and I'm lucky I've got a garden uh, and I was out in the sun today in my garden. Uh, and I appreciate, I'm fortunate uh, in that regard. Not everyone uh, has a garden. Uh, but I'll tell you what, you would never catch me uh, on the beach at South End uh, or these other beaches that I have seen because I would take one look at the thousands of people there and think actually that's not healthy in the middle of a pandemic uh, for me to go down there and set up my deck chair. What about you? Well, uh, the virus doesn't do very well outside. I mean, people have been told to stay indoors and uh, I've noticed in a lot of um, adverse effects from that. I mean, just uh, me personally, um, I've had family members, I've noticed a decline uh, because they've had the, they didn't have a lot in their life before. Uh, but now they've got nothing uh, like the social activities and um, the, the, they've, they've become very sick and on death's door because of this. And I've noticed... Well, I'm sorry to hear that. that. I, hope, uh, I hope they recover, uh, Chris. Uh, just in parting, uh, how do you define far left? Uh, well, communists, uh, uh, Antifa, um, they, it's, it, that's how I see it. I mean, they're, they're, they're not, they're not hiding it. They're, they're sharing communist, uh, mm. communist tweets and, mm. uh, they, they're are calling you a big, uh, Are you, are you a, a big uh, fan of capitalism, Chris? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it works best than, yeah. uh, it works best than socialism. Have you done well? Communism. Have you done well yourself out of it? 
I've done all right. I've done a, done a lot better than people in China and places like that. Well, you're very lucky in that case. You must have done very well. Uh, what, what's your line? Where have you made your money? Uh, just sort of gardening work and stuff like that. I mean, you, you're a you work, don't you, you you're, You've done all right. You're a, you're a gardening worker. Yeah, that sort of field. You're a gardening worker for capitalism. Good luck to you, Chris. Thank Stuart you. is in Kansas. Let's hear from him. Stuart. Uh, hi, George. Can't um, believe I'm talking yesterday. to Kansas. All the best. Go ahead. Um, uh, hi, George. Big fan. I was Thanks. at uh, one of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests yesterday. And uh, it was a peaceful march. It was black-led, um, black and they wanted it to be a peaceful March and everything, and there was mostly no violence. But when I was walking around, I noticed these um, strange white men who, who looked really out of place, who were walking around and filming, and uh, they had their uh, pistols on their hip, visible, their uh, visible firearms, filming protesters, just watching from the sidelines. As these uh, protests escalate, um, e even peaceful protests, um, yeah, there's a big fear, especially of protesters, of uh, these right-wingers who are armed, who have trucks and whatnot, um, basically uh, killing protests, protesters and rioters, peaceful or not. I think there's uh, a very real danger of that. Uh, we talked earlier about the heavily armed men uh, who were permitted by the police uh, to break into the Michigan uh, citadel of the governor, chase the governor uh, from her place uh, into, into a safe room somewhere, and were allowed to stand around with their heavy automatic weapons in, uh, in the uh, governor's uh, uh, parlor. Uh, now, that kind of person, plus the even more sinister, organized Nazi fascist formations uh, are a real and present danger uh, to black people all the time, and particularly when those black people have stood up and said, uh, I can't breathe. Uh, and uh, so it's a dangerous moment. And they have uh, encouragement uh, from uh, the White House. Uh, the White House uh, encouraged uh, the governor of Michigan to negotiate with the heavily armed men uh, in her parlor. Uh, but he didn't say that uh, to the governors of other states now complaining about these protests. It's now perfectly legal to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but perfectly illegal uh, to be a supporter of Antifa. Thanks, uh, Stuart, for that call. William is in North Carolina on Jesse Ventura. Go ahead, William. Uh, I was uh, almost amazed that you let Jesse uh, talk about training as a solution for police brutality. Uh, training has almost zero to do with racial prejudice. And the difference in the way white people are treated and black people are treated has to do with racial prejudice, you know, training is needed, but there can be no training that would eliminate racial prejudice. I don't know about that. Uh, otherwise, we're lost. We're doomed, William. Uh, people, uh, but, but, racist but people, this. racist people can be educated out of their racism, surely. Okay, but the management of both the police and the judiciary is to me a much more important thing to do 
in order to create change. And we can try to educate, okay, but, you know, you, you, you push them with, with a feather. But if you properly manage those people and screen out people yeah. and monitor people and eliminate the bad ones, that's a much more effective way to and, look at and this. And this, e- this could easily have been done in the case of this uh, Chauvin, uh, the mother of George Floyd. Uh, he had killed other men. Uh, he had a list right. uh, as long as your arm uh, of right. racially, well, racially motivated or racially uh, influenced or racially tinged uh, crimes against people that he was supposed to be protecting. Well, my recommendation is that blacks and whites who have the right perspective on this try to gain the offices that manage and control the police and the judiciary. I'm sure, I'm sure Jesse would agree with that too. Okay, well I'm just saying to me, training is kind of looking off in the wrong direction. Uh, it's necessary, but not sufficient. William, thanks for the right. call uh, from North Carolina. Joan is in Bournemouth in England uh, on uh, the same kind of subject. Go ahead, Joan. Hello, George. Um, good to talk to you. Nice well, to I must say, Mr. Hedges and the doctor and the colleagues you've had on have sp- uh, spoken tremendously in the interest of humanity. I think that's dispensed within our society. Humanity is no longer. I feel that the police, and especially the police in our country, they're concerned about hate crime, which is on the rise. And the answer to hate crime, they've created it because they have so many secret service issues, such as no duty of candor. They've got no duty to tell the truth, as we've experienced this. Common purpose, which is funded by the council tax, which is another Nazi movement. Um, Common purpose, no duty of candor, and this is known as the uh, um, the crime. Our criminal. Just a moment. I'm being misled here. Um, with regards to um, common, as I said, common purpose. Mm-hmm. do to come Protocol. Colleagues in in uh, in Parliament, if you can't get answers by your local MP, protocol then he's not. No, you can't go to anybody else. No, so that's you right. You're up. Uh, you're in. You're in a, a dead end uh, in, in those circumstances. Joan, thanks for the call. I'm uh, cutting you short only because there's a legend on the line, and as you know, the decks have to be cleared for Norma in Bristol. Norma, last call of the night. Thank you indeed for waiting. That's okay. I'm actually trying to think of what Ian Jury would say, reasons to be cheerful, George. Ah, yes. <laughs> I mean, that Mr. Chris Hedges, was it? It was uh, very interesting. Chris Hedges, yes. Oh, it, was, it was depressing, but he was very interesting. So I thought I'd just say that neither of us is too well but we appreciate being spoiled at the moment. We've got people doing things for us, 
two members of our family came out today and sat in the garden. And, you know, if you're philosophical at our age, um, keep your interest going. We're not unhappy about this lockdown, which for my husband and me is probably blooming permanent because we can't really get out anywhere. Uh, but I, I'm trying to be cheerful because basically I am. I just wish I was healthy. Well, of course, uh, that's the most important uh, thing of all and the greatest yeah. wealth of all is good health. And yeah. uh, uh, may God preserve you and your husband. Uh, of course, there have been uh, some upsides uh, to the lockdown for uh, those uh, who have been able to spend time with their husband or wife that they had not uh, previously yeah. had much time. Uh, one man uh, famously quipped uh, that uh, he spent so much time with his wife uh, during this lockdown, uh, he discovered that she'd been made redundant from Woolworths and Woolworths had been closed almost a decade ago. Uh, but uh, personally, I've been able to spend quality time uh, with my wife and my children uh, that I will uh, never forget and I hope that yeah. they will never forget it uh, either. Uh, but of course we would have preferred to be out I prefer yeah. to be going to work uh, rather than working from home, uh, but not at the cost of killing other people or being killed uh, myself. Uh, so thank you, Norma, it as always. Bring God bless back the you sport. both. Sorry? Bring back the sport. That's well, the racing, the racing starting tomorrow. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you're, well. if you're interested in the horses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the football on the 17th of June. I can't pretend not to be excited about that. I'm looking forward to the season being completed and the transfer business uh, picking up again. Norma in Bristol, thank you very much uh, indeed. Uh, I'm uh, Mr. Arkwright. I'm open all hours. I'm grateful for your uh, being uh, with me. I should have put a couple of uh, biros, remember them? Uh, big pens uh, in my top pocket of my nylon uh, warehouse foreman's outfit. Sorry if I made the wrong fashion choice. I'll see what the wife thinks when I get home. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week same time, same place.